from Capybara Media, this is You're Gonna Be Great, the self-care podcast that supports you through life's ups and downs with mental health and wellness tips from experts. Here's your host, Emmy Evans. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to this episode of You're Gonna Be Great. This is part one of a two-part series with Matt Wright, a therapist who specializes in addiction and recovery. In this episode, we talk about how to maintain your recovery during crisis, and in this case, during social distancing. Welcome, Matt. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, thanks for having me. So do you want to tell everyone a little bit about your background, what you do? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, my name is Matt. I'm a Gemini. Um, <laughs> I, <laughs> uh, I am a Utah native. Um, raised pretty traditionally Utah style mm-hmm. um, in my 20s I uh, made a pretty radical departure from my earlier years and did a lot of on the ground research regarding addiction mm-hmm. um, you know I look at it as just sort of uh, research for my later formal education Um, that lasted, uh, you know, till I was 30. Um, and during those years, you know, I, I really did, um, struggle and from the inside learned, I think how addiction ravages not only a person, but their, their relationships and, and, um, ability to function in, in society. Um, fortunately for me, I had, um, some really great people in my life who kind of helped me when I was just unable to do that for myself. Um, went back to school, finished up my, I had been chipping away at a, um, undergrad degree for about 17 years. Mm -hmm. Um, by the time I graduated at at least, and then I went, uh, to grad school and got my, uh, degree in, uh, masters of social work. and did some work in while I was at school in um in a research lab uh, that uses mindfulness for addiction and pain management, which was a really great experience. And since then, I have worked at an, a local treatment center um, where I now serve as the uh, clinical director. Oh wow, that's quite yeah. a journey. So how? How did you decide to go into social work? Was that just your experience with um, your own, like what you went through or did was that kind of like in the cards before that? Oh no. Oh no. I fell bass backwards into it. Um, okay. <laughs> I, I had planned on becoming a lawyer my, most of my life. And, oh, and Good. I had a, a friend who was, um, a very successful lawyer who who now has a really awesome job with Portland Trailblazers. And he had gone to like University of Chicago Law School. And so all through my 20s, every time I, I tried to get sober about 6 million times in my 20s. Uh, and every time I did, I uh, would look to this guy and, and think, okay, oh man, I'm so far behind. I got to catch up. I got to catch up. Um, and then I got sober and I got to the point and I actually was at the point where I'd been accepted to law school, uh, was ready to go and, uh, pulled out of it like two months before I was supposed to move. 
in the meantime, for a number of years, I had done various things in the recovery field. Uh, I'd been a volunteer manager at a, at a kind of grassroots sober living, and I had done some sober companion work, which is like being with people who are in the acute stages. Well, the kind of the right after the acute detox, well, while they're detoxing. Anyway, just uh, um, various things. And um, my my wife and I helped start a nonprofit for people who needed sober living. So we've just been doing, um, we've just been doing different, I had been doing different things over time. And realized when it came time to go to law school that I didn't really want to do that. That was just this like thing I was chasing to make me feel like I wasn't less than because I hadn't fulfilled my dream. And suddenly I realized like maybe I should just do what I've been doing all along, which was hanging out with people in addiction and trying to help them the best I can. That's amazing. So I I think, um, Something that's really important um, to mention too is people can be super functional and doing amazing things with their life and be struggling with addiction. Like getting into law school is not fucking easy. Right. So you were doing all of this while struggling at the same time. Because I, I feel like in my experience with friends who have struggled, they had a hard time realizing that they were even struggling with addiction because they were so amazing at life. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, I think one of the fortunate things is the last, you know, we used to sort of use a, a kind of categorical yes, no, you are, you are, you do suffer from a substance use disorder or not. You're an, or it used to be basically you're an addict or not, mm-hmm. uh, or you're dependent or not. And mm-hmm. fortunately I think now it is more of, um, nuance in terms of diagnosis and, and we can look at it along a spectrum. And I think the hard part, I think you bring up a great point. The hard part for people who um, are quote unquote functional is that it's harder to recognize. And, and, and it's the external things that end up becoming like, look, I got my shit together. Like I can keep a job. I yada, yada. But often if you look at, um, I think the, if you those people really got honest, if you got them to talk about what it's like inside, it's probably not quite as functional, not quite as rosy a picture. And for many people, I think pushing even harder on making the outside look good protects what all all of the the shit show that's going on inside. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I need to qualify something though. I was not one of those people. Mm-hmm. I did all of that stuff after I got sober. <laughs> when I was using, I was definitely not the guy who could keep, well, for a few years I could, but by the end I, I couldn't keep a job for more than three weeks. So, Okay. <laughs> um, so, okay. So you decided law school wasn't for you. Mm-hmm. You started working in recovery and that's what you, you Right now you're working at a center, is that correct? Yeah. It- yeah, can can I say the name or is that like a Totally. Yeah. It's called Ascend Recovery. We have an inpatient treatment uh facility in American Fork and then we have a transitional we have a 
a different kind of model. It's a three-stage model. So we have a transitional model when there's not a global pandemic where uh, people go to try to look for jobs and get kind of more networked with the the local recovery community. There's there are a lot of local resources uh, for people in in recovery. Not only the twelve step programs, but there's a local gym called Fit to Recover. There's a really wildly large uh, sober softball league that sober sports sober hiking so we try to get them networked with people in the community um, and help them manage stress uh, as they transition and they go to a sober living in salt lake Um, that's all of course um, different right now but that's what we do and and part of the reason i am um, kind of personally and professionally tied to it is uh, i yeah i got sober uh, for a number of years and then had a had a relapse and I went to ascend and I, I'd already known the guy that owned it there and um I just had had such a transformative person like it was like I felt like they loved me like I felt like mm-hmm. there was like so much care and and they really um helped me look at kind of the underlying stuff that drove my addiction um and so I just kind of hung around. I, I ended up working as a kind of frontline psych tech while I was studying for the LSAT and all that stuff and finishing up school. And then, I don't know, I kind of just never left. That was nine years ago as of the 10th of this month. Oh, wow. That's amazing. Um, so, so you mentioned the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And... Um, that is definitely what um, I want to dive into is, mm-hmm. is how are, how, how is the pandemic affecting, you know, what you do um, and, and what advice can we give to people who are in recovery and right now they're home and they're isolated. Um, maybe they're completely by themselves. Um, so what can we, what can we, do to help prevent I don't know like a relapse Uh, that is an excellent point and it is my greatest concern for anyone struggling um, with any kind of substance use disorder right now because I think on a more existential kind of level I think um, addiction is a disease of isolation Um, I think, you know, it's, it's hard enough to not feel alone, even when you're around people in person, I think in an addiction, because a prime, you know, essentially primary relationship is with a substance and it's a pretty jealous partner, um, that, in general tries to uh, separate people from from real true human connection with other people um so i think there's that to deal like that's already happening even without the 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 kind of you know physical isolation of the pandemic um of course there are many factors that come into recovery uh in, you know, I, I mean, in terms of addressing mental health issues, most, you know, I would say the majority of people that I work with have some other kind of underlying mental health issue as well. And so getting access and care to that 
Um, you know, there are all these areas that we, we can look at, but I, I really do think um, one of the most important thing is having people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they used, to, they, they used to do these old, um, I don't know if you've ever seen, like some of the original um, experiments for kind of the disease model of addiction involved rats in a cage and they would put them in this cage by themselves. And there would be a water bottle with uh, cocaine in it and one with water and they had to tap a lever and essentially the, the rat would just tap the cocaine one until it died when it was alone in its yeah. cage. And I then- remember, I remember that study. Yeah, yeah. right? And, and so for a long time we're like, oh yeah, like um, what they didn't take into consideration, I think that there is this genius, uh, they, there are these other experiments called the rat park experiments. I don't know if you're familiar with those. Mm-hmm. They, they create this little like playground for this gang of rats. And they, you know, they put these rats in there together and then give them stuff to do and, and kind of um, other little rats to play with. And they find that the rats don't become as addicted, like the levels of this, this, compulsive need for addiction goes down significantly when they're with other rats. And I think in my view, um, in many ways, people who suffer from addiction suffer from lapses in connection. And, you know, I think just at a very, very basic level, like, like if you look at these experiments and our, our, just our need to be connected to each other. So I'm, gravely concerned for anyone who becomes more physically isolated during this time if they're suffering with an addiction because I think that is a recipe for either relapse or an exacerbation and in, in, in intensification of use. Mm-hmm. Um, And, you know, I mean, I I think, yeah, this stage is so early and it's like, man, what do we do to help these folks? Um, I mean, fortunately, we do have, we still have phones and we still have computers and and ways to connect. And so for people who are still economically well enough off to have access to those things, I think those can be great resources. And I'm seeing a definite increased number of people who I've worked with in the past, both um, people I've worked with and their loved ones. In fact, just before we got on, I got an email from, uh, from a family, you know, worried about their son who's having a hard time finding housing right now in the, in the middle of this. And they're kind of isolated uh, you know, hold up in Maine and, and the terror and the panic in, in their, in, inside of them being unable to help. Um, you know, I think there's also this whole other subset of people who, who don't have access to those kinds of things. And certainly this affects them, um, probably more deeply you know, the homeless population. And, um, yeah. but for those who do definitely, I think 
you know, if you look at many of the, the go-to resources in the community, they're physical spaces. They're yeah. places people go and gather together, the kind of 12-step meetings or let's play softball or let's go on hikes together or let's work out together or places like uh, USERA that provides resources to, to people with substance use disorders in the community and all other sorts of places, I don't think right now have as much a personal physical presence. Um, and so that's problematic. And I think the community in general is scrambling to figure out how we try to mitigate it, how we try to like get people together without getting them together, you know? Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, I mean, it's hard, it's hard for everyone, <laughs> like let alone, you know, having these additional layers of, you know, addiction or, or mental illness or, you know. Right, right. Like, I mean, the thing, the th you know, the first thing I, I generally tell people and that we're trying to set them up with when they come out of, um, if people are fortunate enough to go to an inpatient place, right? Traditionally, what we've done is we've said like, all right, like, good luck, like, go make your life. Um, but people need a support system and structure in place. And, and the pieces that we help put that together for them are like, okay, let's get you a therapist so that you can address your underlying mental health issues. Let's, let's help you find a sponsor or a mentor or somebody you can meet with kind of shepherd you through this early, these early days of recovery. Let's get you a home group or some, some sort of place with where you feel comfortable. You can start to make friendships with people. Let's get you, uh, make sure your meds are on point and uh, you're meeting with psychiatrists and you're getting all that maintenance. And all of those things are just much more difficult right now. How do you find a sponsor if you can't go to a meeting? Right. Yeah. How do you get connected with a community if you can't go to the places where those people are? And so, yeah, I, I'm noticing um, a sort of limbo status for these folks. And then even the ones who have been plugged in and connected, fortunately, they have been enough that they're still willing to like pick up the phone and, and, and whatever. But, you know, for a lot of people, it takes a lot. It usually oh, yeah. takes somebody kind of reaching out. And so I think many people will begin to fall through the cracks. What are some things that you would recommend people do right now during the pandemic to kind of, you know, stay afloat, to stay, um, you know, to manage their anxieties or depression or whatever, um, and also to um, manage their recovery? Like what, what, what can people be doing right now? Yeah, I mean, great question, because I think, for many, uh, especially in early recovery, you know, if they haven't really practiced um, what works for them and what kind of fills their cup, not with booze, you know, their <laughs> met <laughs> metaphorical cup. Um, seltzer cup. Yeah, yeah, their fancy water. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I think that that becomes a harder question. I think for people who have been in recovery for a while, um, I know for myself, like I, I, I've found things, some of those things are, can be sacrificed, but some I can still do. But I think the important thing to remember is 
first, I think the most important thing is to have some sort of human contact and transparency about just how they're doing and to have people to talk to, like to actually sit down and like write down, like who are the people that I would feel comfortable talking to right now about how I'm doing and then just reach out and call them and maybe call one one day and one the next day, but like really just say, who's my inner circle? Who can I count on? Who can I trust? Because I think one tendency is there's this old kind of AA cliche. I don't know if it originates in AA, but it said a lot that like, you know, my mind's like a bad neighborhood and I shouldn't really ever go in there alone. And that's part of the reason um, sponsorship and connection with other people is so important. And so I would say reaching out is very important. Um, I would say for loved ones, recognizing that if you're not hearing from your loved one, and especially if they're in early recovery, and or even if they've been in recovery a while, but um, you see a difference or a change in their level of openness or transparency or reaching out or just behavioral patterns, take the initiative to reach out to them. Um, Stress is the primary, it's the number one cause of relapse. And certainly there's personal stress. And I think the macro level stress that we're experiencing, the sort of overall zeitgeist of what's happening right now is freaking mm-hmm. people out. And, yeah, absolutely. and so, you know, and, and so for people who are, are sensitive to stress, that's going to maybe double down on that. So um, one is just not be in your own head as much as possible. Secondly, taking a more holistic look, um, taking care of physical health, taking care of emotional health. There are still resources and it's more difficult. And if someone needs, you know, you may need to do a little bit of research, but finding um, you know, I know therapists are now doing um, sessions on online, um, and there are also still community-based resources like uh, support groups, twelve-step, you know, mm-hmm. all the A's, A and ACA, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, many of them are still holding meetings; they're just virtual. Okay. And while that may not be quite as connecting i i still think you know it it does get one out of one's head but i i really think just taking like mindfulness practice uh getting out in nature as safely as possible even if that's just a walk um inviting a friend to walk with you six feet away i don't know you know some like just being creative and saying if i stay in here in my head and stress out my next move is probably like calling somebody that i shouldn't call Mm -hmm. so um and then you know that's 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 for people who are alone and then i think um if you're living with family um, this can go one of a couple ways. I'm sure for everybody, stress and tension is kind of heightened just being in the same space all the time. Oh, yeah, for sure. And so if you've got one member of the family who may still live at home who's got an addiction, that can just 
that's a recipe for a shit show if there's a, a either a relapse or heightened use or whatever. And mm-hmm. and that and, and in that case, I would say um, I've noticed. I think some um, families feel like they can't, like that there aren't any options right now in terms of treatment because of the virus. And and I think as a treatment community, we're trying to do what we can to get people safely into treatment. Mm-hmm. while being cognizant of the fact that, you know, we've got to uh, sort of manage these other pieces. But I see a lot of, um, we've certainly seen a downturn in people reaching out when I'm guessing there's actually an uptick in people dealing with craziness and bullshit, you know? Yeah. Like, do you uh, feel like it's just because they, they, they don't know what to do? They I, yeah. Like- I think it's like, well, we're all on shelter in place. So we'll just kind of ride this out and, and tell things open back up and hope, hope for the best or like hope, you know, it doesn't all burn down between now and then. And, and my, my real recommendation is to like utilize whatever resources there are, whether that's even just, I know that they're um, in different areas or, or local. The cool thing, one other thing I might mention is that usually, you know, you can only connect with people in your area if you're doing it in person. But right now, nationally, I think it's possible to connect to, um, family support groups, uh, support groups for, for addicts and alcoholics and others with substance use disorders. Um, so I think there's actually a broader, you know, one thing I've found just like for myself is, um, you know, part of my recovery has become um, kind of getting down with a little Buddhist stuff. And so I've been able to like, attend more you know join groups in california and stuff like that with people i've met and so it's really just kind of leveraging and utilizing that stuff and being proactive and if you're a loved one not being like still asking the hard questions um i think there's a tendency to say like let's wait till this blows over and and really just saying like hey we're gonna stab each other by the end of this if we don't get something taken care of mm-hmm. um and 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 then finding somebody to help walk you through that and if okay. you don't know somebody reach out to me i don't care like mm-hmm. you know you can call me i'll, <laughs> I'll talk to you i don't um uh, i think everybody should be able to have somebody to try to talk them through how to do this because it's really scary for a lot of people and and it's not always intuitive to know what to do. That's really sweet, Matt. Thank you. All right, folks, that concludes this episode. Hop on over to part two where Matt shares how families and friends can better support their loved ones struggling with addiction or in recovery. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of You're Gonna Be Great. If you've got a minute, please share with your friends and family and leave a review. If you've got questions or comments or you're interested in being a guest on the show, you can find our contact info below. Thank you and stay safe out there.